Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a great comedian. She wrote and starred in Like Mother with Susie Essman. She co-hosts the Bye Felipe podcast. She writes the Just About Glad newsletter and much more. Please welcome Allison Stevenson. Hello. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror in general before we uh, get into today's movie? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. I didn't really seek out horror most of my childhood. And even, like, early adulthood, I... I was just a very anxious, scared person. And yeah, I was a, I was a wimp. I just would get scared all the time. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So I basically, weirdly enough, I think it was the pandemic that motivated me to really like go in and watch horror movies. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, it's just so much, it's so much less scarier. (laughs) And I'm like, why the fuck was I so scared all these years? <laughs> like, it didn't make any sense. I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is so obviously a fake movie, and there's yeah. nothing genuinely terrifying about this. I mean, that's not to say there aren't genuine, genuinely terrifying movies, but it's like, you're over it as soon as the credits roll. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, that was scary. <laughs> Moving on with my day. But as a child, like, just a trailer would give me nightmares, you know? Just seeing, like, a minute or two of, like, the Blair Witch Project, I would be, like, (laughs) unable to sleep at night. And I was always a bad sleeper anyway, and I I would have, like, sleep paralysis and things like that. So I think that also had something to do with it. Just a very anxious child with a lot of stress. So horror movies never helped um, with any of that. (laughs) But then, yeah, more recently, and, and that's the thing, and I think that's why I chose this movie, is I've always had an affinity for horror movies that aren't, actually scary and are actually kind of really funny and stupid like any b movie any trash type of horror film you know anything that is even if that's not the actual intention you perceive the intention to be like oh they know this is stupid Uh those i've always had a, a easy time watching and have thoroughly enjoyed so i could i could watch movies like that all the time you know like the stuff is one of my favorites and it's been one of my favorites oh yeah that's a really great one i mean larry cohen That guy knows what he's doing, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But the movie we're talking about today is Sleepaway Camp, the classic slasher from 1983, written and directed by Robert Hiltzik, and starring Felicia Rose as Angela, Jonathan Tierston as Ricky, Karen Fields as Judy, and Chris Collett as Paul. And my first question is, of course, did you go to Sleepaway Camp yourself? Nope. No. Never. Boy. Never. I did go to Sleepaway Camp, and it was... Oh, you did? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> it was the classic mid-Atlantic Jewish boy. I was I was going to sleepaway camps, and it was fairly accurate representation of the anarchic energy uh, that runs through sleepaway camps in this movie. Yeah, you know, and I think that's another reason I really love this movie is it's part of like this like childhood that I never had. It's like this picture of like a oh yeah, that's what you do. It's summer and you go to sleepaway camp and, you know, you you learn how to build fires and all that. Like, I never had any of that. And so I I really am fascinated by like that. And it also feels like it's so of an era. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't even know what sleepaway, a sleepaway camp looks like today, but I'm like, it probably looks nothing like (laughs) what the movies portray. It's probably a lot different. I I mean, I guess you would know better, but. No, I think you're probably right though, because I mean, even then, 
you know, cell phones maybe existed, but like kids didn't really have them. And so people weren't like showing up with iPhones and like even the like technology that we had, like one kid brought a portable DVD player and the first season of Viva La Bam. <laughs> and yeah. we were like, oh, this is the prime of entertainment for us. <laughs> I love that. That's like, yeah. You know, I don't want to sound like a boomer or whatever, but it's like, man, that really is something that I do feel for these younger kids is they will never really get to understand what it was like to not be without these devices all the time. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Now, the timeline as far as horror at large is always interesting because considering how popular he is, Freddy Krueger is kind of a late stage slasher. Uh, the mm. first installment of Nightmare on Elm Street didn't come out until the end of the following year when Sleepaway Camp came out. So this is really like prime slasher time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Sleepaway Camp really comes out swinging, you know? It subverts a lot of what had already been established to this point in terms of, one, how child characters are treated, the tone overall, and, of course, the gender dynamics in this movie are so different from a lot of what had come before it and even a lot of what's come after it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Another reason I... I it, it, this movie is great. I, I guess you could also argue that it's obviously problematic in some ways which i would agree with as well but i do you know it is cool to see kids die <laughs> in a <fucked> up way. <laughs> like like genuine children because you know in all these other movies a teenager is like 24 years old and you're like wow they're really killing like a 13 year old girl or whatever. it's like <laughs> wow okay <laughs> yeah it really it does a lot to help make you feel like nobody is safe. You know, mm -hmm. the fact that they're willing to go that far, uh, I think is definitely to the movie's benefit. For me, it, it creates a much more like thrilling experience because you're like, oh my God, I, I, so many movies are not willing to reach that point that for mm -hmm. this to be able to do that so early on is really wild. Yeah. I mean, and that's another thing about a movie like this and why I have, so much more respect for, for movies like this than, you know, your quote-unquote Oscar-nominated, critically acclaimed classics or whatever. It really can, you know, go in these directions where it's like, yeah, we're a stupid movie, nobody's going to care. And it's like, let's just kill a bunch of kids. Let's have, like, this... <laughs> You know, like, another movie I really love is Surf Nazis Must Die, which is not a horror, or I guess it wouldn't, maybe it would be, I don't know. But it kind of does the same thing where it's like, there's stuff going on here that I've never, I've never really seen another movie do. Mm -hmm. And nobody really acknowledges that or, like, gives it respect in a sense because of the category that it's in. But, yeah, Sleepaway Camp really, I mean, even with the eventual twist end, I don't know if you want to get into the ending, but... Yeah, even with the gender bending, you know, the playing with what an audience would expect of that ending to be and kind of having that twist, I suppose, yeah. it really plays with what an audience believes like a killer should look like and what a killer, you know, obviously a killer has to be of a certain gender, a certain type, a certain build. It's just interesting. Definitely so. And yeah, well, there is a, a big twist. Uh, we'll get to that very shortly. But yeah, even beyond yeah. even beyond that, there is, I think, a lot of uh, gender dynamics aversion. You know, a stream of scantily clad dudes are the primary eye candy as opposed mm -hmm. to women taking their clothes off. 
which I also very much appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely appreciate that as well. It's just a huge shift from what you're expecting. It, it makes things a lot more interesting. Even the campground-specific trope of skinny dipping is all dudes in this one. Just a yeah. swarm of dudes go running into the water. Yeah, and even, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it really felt like in the very beginning, when we're opening on the, the scene, that big, you know, mm-hmm. but the, the big death scene in the beginning where the, yeah. the sibling and the father die, it's like this... You're not confident. You don't know. Are these two dads? Is this like a, is this a gay marriage or is this just like a friend who's also, you know, you don't know what that relationship is with the older men and the children. Yeah. And I really liked that. I thought, because my first reaction was like, oh, that's a gay couple. But then I'm like, wait a minute, it's the 80. Maybe they didn't, you know, but I liked that. That was a very, what other movie was doing that at the time? Even playing with the idea of this is possibly two gay men with two children, you know? Definitely. I think the idea of just showing, I think that it definitely communicates them as like, lovers at the very least yeah you know i think that yeah. there is an implication that this is like an affair but they seem very happy together oh, sure. <laughs> i think yeah, that yeah. even that is is a, a pretty big shift in what horror movies had been willing to do and the movie filmed in upstate new york a town called argyle at the former camp algonquin that robert hiltzik himself attended according to the commentary very fun commentary track with felicia rose and uh, robert hiltzik if people have the Blu-ray, I recommend it. And it's obviously supposed to be a summer camp, despite the beautiful upstate fall foliage surrounding them. (laughs) (laughs) I did not even realize that. See, there you go. See, uh, it it really is the kind of thing where, like, people are like, oh, man, it's such a huge gap. And people are like, no one even notices. They're just, like, at the camp. Who gives a crap? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the Valley. I've been in California all my life. Like, I don't know seasons. So for me, it was just like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's summer in a place that has real weather. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Now, they only had five weeks to film, and they were immediately behind schedule after the first day, because uh, that first day they were shooting the water scenes, and they had to just throw out the storyboards, he said. And I think that this does lend a certain, like, flying-by-the-seat-of-their-pants quality that I enjoy in the movie. Yeah. I think also lending uh, that unique and enjoyable edge is actually having kids play kids instead of young adults. You know, like you said, usually it's 20-somethings playing teenage counselors, uh, and then there's no kids younger than that. In this, we have real teens playing teenage counselors and genuine children wandering around the camp, which even in, in movies that take place in camps like the Friday the 13th, it was a big deal in the sixth one when there were finally children at the camp. Yeah, yeah. The movie was a big success. It had a budget of $350,000 and made a whopping $11 million after releasing on November 18th, 1983. And it's impossible to talk about the impact this movie had without spoiling the very, very end almost immediately. So, like I said, we usually spoil things as we go, but this is literally the last thing. So, I'm just going to say right now, this is a movie that benefits from seeing with as little knowledge as possible for the first watch. So, if you haven't seen the movie yet... Go do that. And the reason is because in the last frames, Angela reveals that she has a penis, which shapes much of the plot and the reaction to the movie. 
And I wouldn't be doing my due diligence in terms of cultural reaction to this movie if I completely avoided mentioning that there are some divergences of opinion on the way Angela is represented. Some in the LGBTQ plus community see Angela as a cool icon, someone who isn't the killer specifically because she's trans, but killing people because she wants revenge for non-trans specific bullying. This in and of itself is a bit loaded because of course going from Peter to Angela is something forced on her, but the sequels happen and she's removed from Aunt Martha, Angela does continue to present as Angela. So that's how I am uh, treating her as well. Others feel that it plays into a negative trope of trans people as mentally ill, and still others feel that it lies somewhere in between saying, hey, maybe don't force gender dysphoria on people. I am not a trans person and so feel eminently underqualified to discuss this specific aspect. There are plenty of articles online where you can explore opinions from people whose opinions on this actually matter. To me, you work within the confines of your era. I think that it's cool that there's any gender subversion and exploration of that dysphoria at all. So that's going to be how I'm approaching this conversation. Uh, any, any thoughts, anything you want to say before we move on? <laughs> uh, agreed, yes. Great. <laughs> but at the time, people were shocked. They were like, this movie is tasteless, uh, which was both a slam and an accolade, depending on who you asked. Mm -hmm. But the word got out about how wild this movie was, and so people went out to see it, which is why it was such a, a huge success at the box office. And it's also maintained a cult following through the years, developing enough to be named the best horror movie ever made on this very podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Now, to get into the actual story of the, of the movie, there's an amazing dedication right up top. Fond memory of mom, a doer. Uh, not only is it nice for him to do, but also it's kind of funny because it seems like he's going, this is, this is her. <laughs> like, this is about my mom. Interesting. I never made that connection. <laughs> oh, maybe it's just me. I guess I'm I, the weirdo. It makes sense. <laughs> But it does it, this beautiful wooded campground on a lake, huge booming score and jumbled up voices as the camera pans over the rundown buildings. We pass a police notice on the gate and we land on the sign for Camp Arawak marked for sale. You know, a fun little taste of the chaos that's to come before time rolls back and we see children arguing in the thickest, funniest accents on the lake. You know, I did not, you liar. <laughs> <laughs> Robert said that this shooting the water stuff for this first scene took longer than the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. It seems like a hassle. It's a fairly long water scene as well and a lot of uh, moving parts. So it, does, it definitely seems like a challenge. Yeah, totally. There's some jet skiing happening from the camp where the kids, the kids that we see here, dream of going to this camp and they uh, push their dad in the water. Hee <laughs> hee, these little <laughs> rascals. Which, I mean, do they even? <laughs> that's, my, that's my favorite part where it's like they're just standing by him. And I guess he falls and he's like, oh, you rascal. <laughs> like, I didn't really even see an actual push. He's putting the blame on them, but he really jumped in. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, yeah, so this, this second guy, presumably his lover, uh, calls to them and says, Aunt Martha will be there soon. It's kind of funny how looking back, it feels pretty obvious that what you see is Peter flailing around and then the dead dad floating face down and then a shredded life jacket pops up. So seeing that now, you're like, oh, no, duh. It's Angela is the one who got murdered here, leaving Peter for Aunt Martha to force into the Angela role. But at the time, you're like, whoa, what an incredible shock. Like, who, who was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the movie kind of forces you to feel that way. You know, it really, because yeah. I, 
I don't know if I noticed that he was flailing, but watching it a second time, knowing that's what was happening, I still, for a brief split second, was like, oh, wait, was it? (laughs) Wait. (laughs) He could could still have drowned after that. (laughs) Like, wait, did I confuse something? Like, maybe? Yeah. It still kind of threw me off a little. The jet skier is freaking the fuck out while everyone just stands and gapes in amazement. She's like, somebody do something. And everyone's just standing there like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And then we fade to eight years later. And Aunt Martha comes in, serving a damn look. Mm-hmm. Uh, unbelievable. She's calling for the children in the sing-song voice immediately communicated as kind of off her fucking rocker just from the way she talks to herself and to others in like this transatlantic like no that wouldn't do at all mm-hmm. and then you contrast that with ricky who comes in and it's just so normal yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like his mother at all it's hilarious. It doesn't even look like her. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It's so funny. And um, apparently this is how Desiree Gould auditioned. He said this was all her idea. Good for her. God bless. I loved her. I thought she's barely in the movie, but is one of the like things that stands out big time. Yeah. Steals the movie. Some really does. Say. Yes, yes. Meanwhile, Angela has yet to say anything as Aunt Martha hands them their, uh, like, the medical paperwork to the two children. And she says, hey, don't tell anyone that I did these myself. (laughs) 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 Which is also very suspicious. But until you know the ending, again, you're just kind of like, well, I guess it's just garden variety kookiness. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's just a forgetful kooky lady. Yeah. Everyone arrives at camp, and the staff is full of characters, like a cigar-chomping owner named Mel, a pedophile head cook named Artie, and his assistant Ben, played by Robert Earl Jones, father to James Earl Jones, an icon of the Harlem Renaissance. I was like, what a cool get. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) There's also Ricky's friend Paul, who you may know from the Langoliers, the Stephen King TV miniseries, and... He intimates to Ricky that fellow camper and Ricky's steady last summer named Judy has uh, hit puberty, to put it mildly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ricky shows Angela around and they run into Judy, who dismisses Ricky casually while she's talking to some older boys. I love one of them being like, isn't that the kid you were babysitting last year? (laughs) Angela's counselors are Meg, in case you didn't know, I'm Meg, M-E-G. Yeah, what a bitch. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And that's Susie, the complaints department. (laughs) And also, Judy is in the same bunk. They get off on the wrong foot when Angela is staring at Judy. And it's funny to me when Meg snidely says to Judy, like, oh, we got a real winner here. And you're just like, oh, yeah, the counselors are children, too. (laughs) They are are very young. Yeah, yeah. Three days later, she still hasn't spoken. The counselors are starting to get involved when she won't eat either. And the outfits on display in this movie are... Just bananas. I love it. Counselor Ronnie, the cutoff polo and the shortest of shorts, dick and balls on full display. I, it's so good. It's like <laughs> so beautiful. Again, it's like what you were saying earlier. Like the men are a lot more sexualized than the women in this. I love it. Yeah. He takes her to the kitchen and he takes her and shows her to Artie, who leers at her and says, they'll find something together in the walk-in. Not good. And he he starts to unbuckle his pants when Ricky walks in on them and he tells them to keep their mouth shut. uh, Not a problem for Angela. And they flee. Artie walks out literally still buckling when the owner shows up. Like, (laughs) fucking buckle your pants in the walk in, dude. 
like, oh, nothing to see here. No big deal. Yeah. The owner is like, what happened with them? And he's just like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Artie prepares a huge pot of water, getting ready to boil enough corn for the whole damn camp in one go. I was laughing that they specifically call out in the commentary. He was like, we had to make that pot special. Turns out they don't make pots that big. <laughs> Suddenly, we switch to the POV shot, which is fun. Nice little switch up. Also calls back to slashers of yesteryear, like Halloween. And the camera ducks under the table. And when Artie puts some more salt in the water, they pull the chair out from under him. And part of what I love about this scene is that it's not immediate. It gives you some room for him to react. And then also that he doesn't even get, like, the relief of death. You know, this guy is awful we've seen him immediately be a pedophile Mm -hmm. he for his troubles gets covered in just awful awful burns blisters literally popping up as we watch um it's it's seems agonizing yeah (laughs) well deserved totally it's great and i think it's purposely played for laughs here but there's a hilarious cut as he's like just screaming and then it cuts and he's completely wrapped up and being put on the stretcher and he's still screaming the, in the exact same intonation. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's classic comedy. Totally, yeah. Mel doesn't want anyone to know what happened to Artie, so he promotes Ben to head cook and gives everyone raises his bribes. And while they're doing this, the flypaper just hanging next to Ben's head is so fucking nasty. <laughs> The scenes are set very well, yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. The production design on this is really fantastic. You know, I'm sure that shooting in an actual camp means that they could focus on the details. Totally. Yeah, yeah. There's a a funny prank where they tell someone they're doing a magic trick where they can't sit up. And then uh, he sits up right in Nepal's bare ass. (laughs) Really makes me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Truly classic. You know, this is, again, the kind of thing where it feels pretty honest to to camp anarchy yeah pranks were flying around like crazy you know uh, and this this just fits right in again it's it's that authentic feel that makes the more wild stuff feel part of the world and and you're like oh it actually affects me because i feel so much more realism from the rest of it yeah i could see that their counselor gene also has a great fit most cropped top to ever get cropped plus some jorts <laughs> Get yep. them all to play some baseball, baby. <laughs> uh, a little Pete Rose action, too. He's betting on his own team. And during the baseball game scene, which I am a sucker for a baseball movie or even just a baseball scene, some of the most iconic lines to ever get delivered, like, eat shit and die, Ricky. Eat shit and live. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was great. And there's a sick double play by Ricky to end the game and the other boys swear revenge. <laughs> Yeah, like, that's how you make an enemy in, in sleepaway camp. Like, Obviously, yeah. yeah. Oh, foolish, foolish. That night, they're standing around, and they decide to she's all that Angela and invite her down to the lake with them as a joke. But her being quiet unnerves them, and they start making fun of her to her face. And in walks Ricky with this huge-ass cowboy hat. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the commentary, very funny. They were like, they were like, why was he wearing that? And the director just goes, oh, he was wearing it so they could knock it off. <laughs> Look, that's movie making. That's all you need. That's a perfectly valid reason. Yep. He sees the boys literally saying, yo, Angela, how come you're so fucked up? <laughs> <laughs> Which that's a, a treasure of a line. But that's how kids really talk. Yeah. <laughs> Really they don't is. know nuance. They're just like, hey, why are you fucked up? 
It's great. It's really funny. The boys start scrapping when Ricky sees this, and they get pulled away. Ricky goes to the infirmary, so Paul goes to chat with Angela, and he's polite. He knows about her family. He says that he and Ricky are tight, and Judy sees this and grimaces. <laughs> she says, no one else can have any attention. And and Paul gets called away with the breast of bunk 19, and Angela actually says, good night. And this Charlie Bucket-ass motherfucker lights up like a damn Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's kind of, you know, it's funny, but it's also kind of cute for him to be like, oh, she said goodnight. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was cute. It was cute. Billy and the older boys are trying to convince the girls to skinny dip and they're smoking pot as well. And like we said, the girls refuse and the boys say, fuck that. I'm going in anyway. They all strip down and they run in. Uh, although Leslie does agree to go on a canoe ride with Kenny. Apparently, the actor who played Leslie had to get replaced a few times. <laughs> really? The first one got mono, and then the second one was just like, I actually don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so oh, they were damn. like, fuck. The <laughs> third one, third Leslie finally made it. And he rocks the canoe into tipping over while the boys jeer from the banks, and there's a big expensive fog effect happening <laughs> for no no reason, really. <laughs> but because it looks good, that's why. And someone else emerges from under the water and drowns Kenny. And they all are just like, oh, he's being a wise ass. And they just leave him there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The next morning, one of the counselors is cleaning up the lake and he tips over the canoe to find the corpse. And out of the mouth crawls one of the water snakes that he was teasing Leslie about. Very fun reveal. He looks grody as hell. Yeah. Literally had to keep the snake in his mouth and get carried out in the body bag for real. So putting in the work. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, that snake, oh my god, holding the snake in your mouth seems like a nightmare to me. (laughs) (laughs) A water snake of all snakes. (laughs) Yeah. Angela is playing her bunkmates play volleyball, including Judy, wearing a bright pink shirt with the word Judy on it. (laughs) Again, the outfits in this, just delightful all around. Yeah. Paul comes over to chat with Angela, and she is saying whole-ass sentences to him now, so we're seeing some progress happening. And he asks her to go with him to the movie at the rec hall that night. You know, it's it's funny, but it's also a little cute where he's, she's like, we have, to, we have to go to the same place. Obviously, I'm going to the movie. He's mm-hmm. like, no, sit with me. And Judy is jealous that she gets to talk to boys all day while everyone else has to do actual camp activities. Uh, and so Meg, at her behest, comes over to yell at Angela. And holding hands, Paul walks Angela back to her bunk, while Ricky tries to convince Judy to go out with him again, but she's busy glaring at Paul and Angela. So he takes her around the corner to show her something, and steals a quick kiss, uh, and he kisses her a second time, and she seems uncomfortable, but more in a, like, inexperienced kind of uncomfortable than a, oh god, Paul sucks kind of way, and she quickly goes inside the bunk. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where Judy has had enough. (laughs) Judy really just cannot handle anything. <laughs> she really cannot. <laughs> she She's pissed about it, and, and she's like, why don't we go out? Like, fuck, screw Angela. And, and he says no. He heads inside, finds the classic shaving cream prank happening again. This victim, the victim of the prank, pulls out a huge knife and threatens to kill Ricky. <laughs> and... I like the way that this movie kind of creates an air of mystery as to who might be doing the kills by having literally everyone be a psychopath ready to stab. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Also, they're eating Fry Hopper's cookies, which he he made sure to point that out on the the commentary. Yeah, I don't know what those are. Yeah, me neither. 
<laughs> but he, he was very specific. He said, everyone everyone needs to get fry hoppers. So if you're near fry hoppers, try them, I guess. The next day, Judy is teasing them again, and she sends Meg over to shoo away Paul, and Meg freaks out at Angela's silent treatment. She shakes her. She, like, balls up her fist like she's about to like slug Angela in the face before head counselor Ronnie in yet another cutoff shirt gets Meg off of her. And Judy, furious on Meg's behalf, continues to hector Angela, declaring her to be both queer and a carpenter's dream, flat as a board, and and I forget the exact uh, uh, back is it like <laughs> easy to screw or needs something? Needs a screw. Yeah, needs, needs a, a screw. screw. Needs yeah. a screw. And this leads to Susie slapping Judy after Judy tells Susie, the counselor, to fuck off. <laughs> Pure anarchy. I love it. Judy yeah. really just chaos embodied. Totally. The boys are having a rooftop water balloon fight, like you do. And uh, when they see... <laughs> With no one, like, telling them to get down there. Yeah. Like, they could just go up on that roof and throw water balloons at each other. It's a classic game. Everyone yeah. does it. <laughs> <laughs> they see Angela and they say, ah, perfect, our time has come, and they nail her with a bunch of these water balloons. Ricky threatens these boys, and Mel has to defuse the situation, taking canteen privileges away from the boys, but also from Ricky on account of his filthy mouth. Yep. <laughs> Which, first of all, feels like a weird uh, comparison, like, to be like, yeah, these are the exact same, but yeah. also now someone is finally making a fuss about the language. <laughs> One of the boys who has been teasing Angela gets locked in the toilet and the window above him gets knifed and a bee's nest gets tossed in there with him. It's my favorite death. I think that happens. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. It's a really fun one. Can a guy even shit in peace around here? He said, <laughs> the director said that, uh, this cost $100 for a bee wrangler. That's how they pulled this off. Okay. So pretty cheap. Pretty cheap for how good it looks. I mean, it's just, it also is just so ridiculous. It's like they're honeybees, aren't they? They're not yeah. even like, I, I thought maybe wasps would be more dramatic, no. more effective. That was $200. Yeah, that must have been a little bit above budget. But yeah, just like the swarm of honeybees. <laughs> just take them out. <laughs> They didn't even actually sting him. He just got so scared. He had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, probably. He finally breaks the broom that was trapping him in, and the welts are disgusting on his corpse. Great look, especially since the actual kill is suspenseful with the shaking closed door. Mm -hmm. And Mel is filled with a righteous fury. And he says, I knew, but I didn't stop the killer. Look at what he's done. We'll have to shut down, but I'll stop him. And, and this... Mel getting pushed over the edge is like maybe my favorite B plot of what's happening here. <laughs> totally. Yeah. He's great. Just that character. So scummy. Yeah. Of course, this is the guy that would own a sleepaway camp in New York. <laughs> like, <laughs> And Angela is sneaking around outside and the camera POVs right up to her, but it's just Paul and uh, she's scared of the killer, but Paul is playing it cool and they go to the lake. Paul and her, they start to smooch, but when he starts to unbutton her shirt, she freezes, and she has a flashback to herself and Peter watching their dad and his lover. Then uh, it's, a two, it's a vision of the two of them sitting on the bed, the camera spinning around as Peter points at Angela, but occasionally Angela fades out a bit and points at Peter. And again, clear in retrospect, but as you're watching, you're like, 
what the hell's going on here? Right. Yeah. I forgot about that, actually. The director says he's laying the blurred gender roles foundation here. I like it. I think it works. It's some cool surrealism happening yeah. right in the middle of it. She snaps out of it and freaks out. She runs off. And the remaining campers are going to play Capture the Flag. So Paul takes this chance to finally be like, hey, what's the deal, Angela? She tells him that she's not ready and to leave her alone. So Judy the Vulture swoops in. <laughs> she, she gives Paul bedroom eyes and she says she knows lots of things. Yeah. Uh, and, and Paul uh, uh, is a sucker and he falls for it. Ricky wants Angela's help to steal the flag. And he convinces her to cut through the woods so they can sneak up behind them and she'll be a distraction for him. But this is where Ricky and, uh, and Angela see Judy kissing Paul here in the woods. Paul runs after her when Angela runs away. But Judy is just pleased as punch. Yeah, this is what she wanted. <laughs> it's more about causing chaos than it was really about being interested in Paul at all. So uh, 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 mission accomplished. Totally. Later at the lake... Paul tries to apologize to Angela, but Judy comes over again to ruin things, saying that Paul called Angela a prude, and he leaves. He's like, I can't do this right now. Mel approaches Ricky, questioning how his summer has been, and trying to get some hints as to if he's the killer. <laughs> again, Mel, really fantastic. You know, Ricky's like, it's okay, I wish there were more guys around. And Paul, in the background, is just like curling weights in the middle of the field. <laughs> And you're just like, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very fun. It's a, it's a very fun scene. Mel is he's playing coy as he tries to figure out what's going on. It's just a lot of fun. Ricky sees the taunting escalate as Meg comes over to help Judy by literally picking up Angela to throw in the water with Judy chattering away the whole time right in her ear. And he goes to run over, but Mel freaks out and he grabs him. He says, aha, I know it's you. You did this to ruin me. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of a child being specifically like, I think that I will bankrupt this old man today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's so interesting to me because it's like, you understand why the suspicion would be on Ricky. Mm -hmm. But it's like, even Mel is like, yeah, you're doing this to like protect your, to protect Angela. But then he changes it to, <laughs> oh no, actually, this is about me and you want to ruin my <laughs> life, you 13 year old boy. <laughs> It's very funny, and and while this is happening, Ronnie comes over to stop uh, Mel from literally assaulting this child. He's about to, like, beat the shit out of Ricky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so Ricky runs over to help Angela out of the water with another counselor. And I like that this other counselor goes, you're a real peckerhead, Meg, you know that? And, like, she looks surprised. Like, I can't believe people aren't on board with me bullying a girl half my size and several years my junior. Right, right. <laughs> the other kids throw sand at Angela as they walk her back. And again, just everyone is so fucked up in this movie. It's wild. Sand at her. Like, why are, just because she won't talk. It's literally because she just doesn't talk. And it's like, just, yeah. who cares? Why do you care so much? <laughs> it's really funny because um, Felisa Rose was like, in the commentary, she was like, why did you have them do that? And he just, like, I could, like, hear him stare into the middle distance. And he just goes, kids can be so cruel. It's, <laughs> it's true. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, he's been through shit, for sure. Yeah. Sleepaway camp was rough for him, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Ricky says, you won't get away with this. 
classic. Yeah. And uh, they stare out together at Judy and Meg, him and Angela do. Meg is off that night, and she's uh, excited about a date that she makes with Mel, of all people. Like, where did that come from? (laughs) That came out of nowhere. It's really weird, because, like, in the very first scene in the cafeteria, like, in the background, you see Mel, like, gripping her waist and then, like, smack her butt as she walks away, and you're just like, oh, it's Mel being a fucking, like, creepy old camp owner, and it turns out she, they were dating, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's right. Okay. That, I, I just thought of Artie as the only pedophile in the beginning of the movie. I guess so. Yeah. Well, he did. I mean, he clearly let it thrive. He, he saw the guy walking out, unbuckling, and he's like, well. True. Out yeah. of sight, out of mind, I guess. Yeah, yeah. As I was watching, I started wondering if Judy and Meg were supposed to be sisters. They look kind of similar. She calls her a very familiar nickname, like Jude. Both have this thing for older men, and she helps Judy be awful to Angela. But in the commentary, not only did he say that she wasn't related, she was originally supposed to be blonde, and the other actor that they considered for Judy was Jane Krakowski. Oh, wow. (laughs) What a difference. A huge difference, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? In another in another timeline, we, we got the Jane Krakowski Judy. No, nah, but this Judy was great. She she had the, the anger inside. She had the look. <laughs> she brought. <laughs> yeah, like just her facial expressions were so spot on. Yeah. Meg heads next door to take a shower because the water is still on there despite the, the bunks having consolidated. And there's a huge line in theirs, and she promptly gets knifed in the back through the shower wall. That seems bad. (laughs) Very painful. Yeah, yeah. The youngest kids are going on an actual camping trip, heading out into the woods while the rest of the kids have a social. And Paul says hi to Angela as she leaves the social, and she just asks where Ricky is. Paul says he's back at the bunk lying down. And, you know, when you're watching this and you don't know for sure that Angela is the killer they're, they're still really kind of pushing this it could be either one of them Ricky or her because she wanders away as well it could obviously be her here but the idea that Ricky is just oh I feel sick for the social all of a sudden they definitely kind of pull you in both directions now Paul tries to apologize to Angela again and Judy pushes past them being rude as fuck again so just another another day at Camp Arawak Angela tells Paul to meet her at the waterfront after the social, and some younger kids on this camping trip decide that they're cold and they want to go back. And so the counselor who's with them leaves a bunch of the sleeping kids out there alone in the woods. Terrible decision. (laughs) First mistake, but then we take the killer's POV again as they come in and take the hatchet from this group. And I like that we don't know for sure that these kids get killed here i'm saying i am saying to you the Mm -hmm. audience yes these kids get killed but you're like oh they they were cowardly (laughs) just took the hatchet and left them there again so for it to come back to this scene and feel the same discovery that the counselor will feel when he comes across this group i think is really effective movie making yeah yeah it's now an hour past date time and mel is looking for meg Uh, He's looking snazzy in his green and yellow fit. And Judy tells him where she went. And a look of fear crosses his face as he realizes that, uh, well, she left the group. And that means bad news for her. Of course, his fears are correct. And he's devastated to find her dead in the shower. Amazing line delivery. Oh, no, not you, Meg. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
very funny also that she just happened to to fall out perfectly timed. Like as soon as he right. arrives, the pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's sure that Ricky did this to get back at him. And he, I had him and I let him go. He said. Judy is curling her hair, and the door opens to reveal an androgynous figure with longer hair pulled back and just like a tee and jeans on. And they approach in the dark, and Judy recognizes them only to get knocked the fuck out. <laughs> and yeah. as she recovers, the pillow gets put over her face, and you're like, oh, this is bad enough. She's going to get smothered to death here. Turns out the actual murder is Ugh. much more awful. A uh, hot curling iron gets put in her vagina. Ugh. Seems like a tough way to go. It's That was the hardest one to, <laughs> to sit through. <laughs> it's it's intense it's very intense that one counselor like i said returns to find these three remaining kids murdered where he left them uh he pukes which i thought was very funny <laughs> and then he runs for help and these were the kids who were throwing sand at her and uh and so justice served yeah yeah ricky grabs a fistful of chocolate from the rec hall which i also thought he's just got a handful of stuff and he's walking back to his uh his bunk when a hand slyly grabs him as ronnie is getting the call about the three dead campers the hand was of course mel who slaps the shit out of ricky and then starts smashing him this this scene is wild. He's doing like a Donkey Kong smash on him. Yeah. Uh, I got him just like I promised Meg. He says. <laughs> Good lord. It's, it's wild. It's insanity, yeah. Then as he goes to run away, he's stopped in his tracks by an arrow in the throat. Classic campground horror movie move. Throws back to Kevin Bacon in Friday the 13th, the original one, of course. Just uh, how are you going to be at a campground and not kill someone with a bow and arrow? Can't yep, be done. Yeah, yeah. Paul and Ricky and Judy and Angela are all missing as far as the counselors are concerned, who are really doing a terrible job of keeping track of, of campers. Yeah. And so they split into pairs to look. And Paul is down by the waterfront waiting for Angela, who finally shows up. She wants to go swimming, and she tells Paul to take off his clothes, to which he eagerly acquiesces. The policeman, who has a truly remarkable fake mustache... This is incredible stuff. He, uh, I was in the commentary. He, so it has to be seen to be believed because he has a normal one at first yeah. when they find John by the lake. And then he had another gig in between shooting days and he shaved on him. Oh, is that what happened? Okay. Yeah. Okay. They also said that he tried to hook up with Felisa's mom on set. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so this dude is really just living his best life out yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> Gene finds Ricky, who is still alive, but barely. And Susie and Ronnie are also paired up. They're walking around with a broken flashlight, which is like the funniest little detail for them to be like, ah, we grabbed the one not working flashlight to look around for these kids. And they hear some tuneless singing. It's Angela, and she has Paul lying in her lap, eyes closed. Fun flashback time. This is where it all really <laughs> kind of hits the gas here. In. Yeah, yeah. Aunt Martha is saying, damn, I always wanted a little girl, and then my husband left. Well, water under the bridge, I'm going to turn you into the little girl I always wanted, because we already have a little boy, and two simply won't do. This is where Angela stands up to reveal it was just Paul's head, which falls away. Uh, truly cracks my ass up. I have like totally forgot that he was already like a severed head at this point. Yeah. And so when she stands up, I was like, Oh, <laughs> Paul. And she makes the weirdest fucking noise. I I'll spare everyone. My trying to imitate it. 
but it is yeah. very disconcerting. It's it's just wild. It makes no sense. <laughs> and of course, Angela was Peter, so has a penis, which shocks the onlooking counselors. So incredible ending, if not a bit complicated, because again, it's not just like, oh, Angela's trans. It was something forced on her by Aunt Martha, not Peter saying, I'm actually a girl. But of course, we see in these moments how the dysphoria can fuck with your head, everyone treating you in a way that doesn't reflect how you see yourself even if they do see themselves as Angela now. And so this is truly a shocking moment as the freeze frame slams in on, on her and, and turns green and, and that's it. We, we don't yeah. know what happens with these counselors. They could be dead next. True. Yeah. No idea. <laughs> no clue. But just that last shot, it's like, and it's so obviously some sort of like mannequin or something with Angela's face on it. Like just this awful... <laughs> So badly, but it's so great. It's so great. Yeah. Bloody naked body. <laughs> really wild. And now, Allison, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. I think it's truly timeless. It will, even though, and maybe that's what makes it more interesting is that as time progresses and we have more openness and these things aren't so like shocking anymore to have like a trans character, a gay couple and things like that, you can kind of watch it and really see just how much this movie was doing things that just kind of weren't done at the time and have an appreciation for it. And sure, yeah, it's like, it can be argued that it was doing things in a negative way, but I really think it's a great, I mean, on top, you know, not just that aspect of it, but just the fun and cheekiness of it too, you know, the corny deaths and like so much of it is a beautiful time capsule and we're never going to really have anything like that again, you know, unless it's intentional, but uh, it's just, it's really a fun interesting watch and i think it just has more layers than your average slasher film because of it it's definitely something you know you could have a discussion about this movie in a very serious manner and it's such a ridiculous movie that it's like that's crazy to say but you really (laughs) could have like you could have like a a course on this kind of movie in a college class, you know? Yeah. And that's what I love. I love movies like that, that are at first watch, you're like, oh, okay, that was silly, stupid. What a weird ending. And then you think about it more and you're like, huh, actually there's like something poignant going on here. And then you watch it again. You're like, oh no, wait, it's just stupid. (laughs) You can just kind (laughs) of, you can just kind of go back and forth. And to me, that's what makes a great lasting fun movie, you know, more than just like a throwaway movie. It's like timeless in that sense. Yeah, I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is both a perfect reflection of the time it came out in. And as you say, an incredibly timeless work that really, I think, captures the spirit of what makes horror so fun. You know, it is early 80s. We get a lot of the great practical effects that look really, really fun, help to really elevate this movie. There is some cheesy acting that is not only easy to get past, but easy to lean into and say that this is part of the fun. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there is an interest in subverting the established dynamics and a, an interest in pushing boundaries that I think is is so part and parcel of what makes horror interesting. 
And I think yeah. that, that it's so beautifully illustrated in this movie, not just in uh, Angela being revealed to have a penis at the end, but the whole way through this movie, there is so much that it's doing to make sure that it's unique and stands out from the crowd, even in a time when sla- we were getting a glut of slashers. This has stood the test of time because it is so unique and interesting and does so much fun with, with this, the, the work that it uh, can do. Yeah. And, you know, to more on to the, the point of like this, the way that Angela is treated as a character, you sympathize with her. There is like a fin- you know, I when I first watched it, I thought there was no way it was Angela because I liked Angela so much. <laughs> and I was like, it's got to be re-. like, it's got to be somebody else who's like defending for her. And really, I thought what was especially an interesting choice is that she's not doing anything to anybody other than killing them eventually. But like, she's really just being herself and being totally Mm -hmm. quiet. She's not bothering anybody. But to see how much that affects everyone around her, it it really does show. And and, and it, you know, I think today I'm not a I'm not a trans person. I'm not, you know, a thinker or an academic on these sorts of things. But it really does say a lot. You kind of take a closer look at it in terms of like, yeah, she's not hurting anybody, but everyone is so pressed about her existence. <laughs> why do you care that she's not talking to anyone? Like you can kind of see the extension of that, of like, why would anybody care that she's trans? You know, yeah, like definitely it, there is just a lot to it for being such a like ridiculous, campy movie, literally campy. Very. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Even that, a literal camp film that is so camp that I think just, it, it has a lot of layers that I really appreciate. Definitely so. It's a really fun movie, and I highly encourage people to check it out if they have not. Allison, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute blast. Please tell people where they can find you on social, any projects that you want to plug, all that jazz. I'm on social media, uh, at JustAboutGlad, Twitter, Instagram, not a lot of projects going on right now, but just, you know, if you follow those, you'll see. Keep track uh, by following her on social. There you go. Yeah. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. The username applies pretty much everywhere, but I'm mostly on Twitter. And uh, if you're really enjoying the show, you can check out the Patreon. A couple bucks a month, you get at least one bonus episode every month, and it could be about anything from video games to books. We just talked about Kurt Vonnegut last month, so that was fun. All kinds of great stuff that you can find over there for just a couple bucks, and if you are really, really enjoying the show, even more helpful than that would be a rating and a review, because one rating and a review has a huge impact on the rankings. I don't know if you know that out there in in listenership land, but it really does. So uh, rate and review if you're enjoying the show. All right, everyone. Have a good one. Bye.